0: Welcome to No Time to Waste, the podcast that inspires and motivates us to maximize our moments. I'm your host, Allison Haddon. I'm battling terminal cancer, but I'm focused on living my best life as my best self every day. Join me as I chat with resilient adventurers, seekers, trailblazers, and exceptionally good humans as we explore what it means to live fully because there's no time to waste for all of us. This was a really special conversation that I had with Rabbi Steve Leder. He heads up one of the largest Jewish congregations in the country at the Wilshire Boulevard Temple in L.A. His most recent book, The Beauty of What Remains, shares his thoughts on navigating grief and loss through the lens of not only a rabbi who's shepherded thousands of families through the loss of their loved ones, but also now as a son who recently lost his father after a 10-year battle with Alzheimer's. Rabbi Steve Leader answered a lot of my burning questions after reading the book, and whether he likes it or not, he's now my personal rabbi. My audio in this episode is crap because I screwed up the settings when we recorded and I'm kicking myself. but please don't let that take away from the message It's Rabbi Steve Leader for no time to waste
1: you're the first like spiritual leader or like spiritual teacher that I've had on the podcast where you are an expert on grief. <laughs> <laughs> well, um,
2: we're all experts in our own grief. And I think that's really important, you know, maybe to start there, that there's no wrong way to grieve, And the only person who's an expert in your grief is you. Uh, and, and that's kind of, in a way, <clears throat> the story of the book, because the book explores two things. It's definitely a field guide for people through the experience of death and loss and grief and mourning. I mean, it's definitely there to help people with what do I do now, where am I headed, uh, and how do I get there in in a healthy and, and meaningful way. But the golden thread that sews the whole book together and runs through it is my journey as a result of my father's Alzheimer's and death from steve leader the rabbi and what he knew about loss to steve leader the son and what he had to learn about loss and then go back to correct about my previous assumptions you know so i in the in the prologue of the book i say that <clears throat> after my father's decline and death i realized that almost everything i had been teaching and doing to help people through loss was just one degree shy of the deepest truth. And I wrote the book to bring us all down to that one degree deeper level of understanding, really understanding what death comes to teach us about leading more beautiful and more meaningful lives. And and I hope I succeeded.
1: Well, I've I read the book you know, over the last week and just poured into it and have in front of me so many, so many quotes and so many things that I, that I pulled from it. Um, it is, as you mentioned, it's a field guide. It's a, it's a, it's a way to explain, uh, grief for, for those navigating it for those who've experienced it, you know, through, through the, the wisdom and, and hindsight of your own personal experience
2: right? We can grieve many things, not just the loss of life. You know, there are many forms of death, There's death of relationships and death of invulnerability and death of, of, of dreams and fantasies. And there are, there are many, many types of loss and, and they have some common denominators, you know? So that, that's the hope that the book actually gives people something solid to stand on when they experience loss, that actually makes their lives better in the end,
1: right? And that's the whole <laughs> the whole thing. And I've got some I've got some questions for you. Okay. But the whole, The whole goal, right, is that by confronting mortality, it motivates us and wakes us up, so that we lived today differently, right? And... That's right.
2: I mean, Kafka said the meaning of life is that it ends, and that's true. Imagine, imagine a deathless life. I mean, we would we wouldn't even really be human if we led deathless lives. It would be some other kind of life. Um, and, you know, there would be no ambition, there would be no love, there would be no um uh, empathy or nurturing. Um and I don't think anyone would ever have a partner or get married or have children. Um You know, and and there'd be no beauty. You know, I'm going to paraphrase, but Wallace Stevens said the beauty of a flower is that it fades. Right. And that's why plastic flowers don't move us. Nobody cares about plastic flowers because they have no death. They have no life. They're meaningless. And, And in no way am I trying to diminish the anxiety and fear that comes with this confrontation with mortality but but it, it's far from worthless right
1: yes and you 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 know this intimately i just pulled down i'm sitting in my office right now um a quote that i have up on uh my board and it's from emily dickinson and she said that it will never come again is what makes life so sweet right and um you, you know, it's the yin to the yang. You know, there's there's a lot of research that explains why we as humans um, avoid the topic of death. Right?
2: You almost have to at cer- at a certain age in order to be able to live and 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 produce. And, and um, there is definitely a time in life to uh, to deny death. Of course, there is. I think that I think it's mostly for the young, and and I think I think. Believing in one's immortality at a young age is an is a huge engine of creativity and and striving. Uh, I wrote my rabbinical thesis on Einstein, and one of the things I learned in in studying about Einstein and his life was that most most and by most I mean almost all great scientific theories are discovered by people who are thirty years old or younger. Huh. Um, there. And There is something, uh, and I think that's connected to some degree to the denial of death, and it, it creates just this incredible feeling of power uh, mm-hmm. that I think is very productive at certain times in life, but then at other times, as we get older, becomes just pure denial or narcissism and becomes mm-hmm. almost self-destructive. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I, I think, you know, Ecclesiastes in the Bible was right. There's a time for everything.
1: I am challenged with trying to find a balance now in my situation of accepting my fate, which is most likely the death by this cancer, most likely in the next couple of years, if I, if I get that. Um, so I, I'm trying to figure out where that line is between facing and accepting that but then also being in a healthy state of denial in order to fully experience the present moment how
2: well maybe i think maybe i can frame that maybe i can frame that differently for you i don't think given your circumstances you need to worry about being in denial of death very much if at all because because um I know more than I care to about cancer and treatment, et cetera. Um, my wife's had, had cancer twice. Last week she finished her fifth cancer surgery for this most recent cancer. So I don't think you need to worry about being in denial of your cancer and its lethality. I think the greater uh, focus for you um, is to make sure you're not in denial of life. I wouldn't worry about being in denial of death if I were you, because the disease is, is going to be a frequent piercer of that denial. I would, I would be much more focused on making sure you're not in denial of life, that you're not in denial of the opportunity every day presents to you to, to lead a meaningful and beautiful life and to enjoy it.
1: I think I've got that. I mean, the funny thing is, is cancer or not, I I think I've always had that.
2: The truth is that death does not give anyone a new personality. And it doesn't give a family a new personality. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: It just makes everything more so. So if you were a person who embraced life before this diagnosis, you're going to embrace it even more now. Obviously, with some physical limitations, but that has nothing to do with embracing life, frankly. And, you know, if you were a doer before, you're going to do even more now within your capabilities. So I, I I think the important thing is is to lean into who you really are. And that means you're going to go through this as successfully as you've gone through every other phase and challenge of your life. And frankly, you are, or we wouldn't even be talking right now. Look what you've created. So I I think this is very much about having faith in who you are, who you've always been and leaning into that rather than, you know, this, this concern that this is going to somehow transform you into a different kind of human being because it isn't. Mm -hmm. And in your case,
1: that's. I have never been more aligned to my spirit to my purpose. I you know, I, I mean it when I say everything everything in, in my forty years has brought me to here, right? And it's really crappy. Yes. That and and by
2: the way, and not for a moment do we want to pretend that it's worth it. Right? right? That this Thank diagnosis is not. worth. Right yeah, no. It's it's not. It's not. But but neither is it worthless. And I think that's a very important distinction. Is it worth it that you've achieved this level of insight in your life? Is it worth the, can- is the cancer worth that? No. I mean, you would, I'm sure pretty happily go back to the, to the A minus enlightenment you had before cancer. you'd give that's up right. the A plus enlightenment you have now, right? It's not worth it, but it is far from worthless. And you are making the most of it. You know, I'll tell you something. It's not in this book. It's in the the previous book I wrote about pain. This is a very powerful idea. Dostoevsky said his greatest fear was that his life would not be worthy of his suffering. I think that's a very powerful idea to share with people who are in pain. Can you lead a life that is worthy of what you are enduring? that's the to me that's the only question
1: yeah on the days i do feel well or the days i don't feel well um what motivates me and trumps my negative cloudy depressed mindset is getting messages from people that say please like you're helping people keep going and that will trump my own discomfort than more than anything else
2: i would guess under the um topic of not of of death and pain not really changing us but intensifying us i would guess that your whole life when you knew other people were depending on you you upped your game
1: oh yeah i mean i i I like to be the hero i want to be the one that saves the day i love the responsibility i love the pressure 30 seconds left, clock, clock, give me the ball. I, right. I want
2: all of it. Right, and so so why would that be any different now? You know, so, so now when you're not feeling well, what gets you to rally? Somebody says, here's the ball and there's 30 seconds left. And you rally, and that's you and that's beautiful. And this is what I was saying earlier about leaning into who you really are and enjoying it.
1: This whole situation is very on brand. <laughs> You know, like, of course, of course, I will not go, go quietly into that dark night. Like, of course, I'm going to go out like Yosemite Sam style and I'm going to help as many people as I possibly can. And I am going to say yes to anything that comes my way. And on the days that I do feel good or the weeks or months where I don't have a scan or I'm not in treatment other than weekly chemo and immunotherapy, like, I'm going to go get it because that's how I've always been. Um, And now to be able to be able to put that energy towards something that actually helps people is like. So much more meaningful than I ever would have thought.
2: And it also means. You know, listen, often when people come to see me facing a terrible situation. The worst in their lives. I often ask them before this, what was the most difficult thing you ever had to survive, you ever got through? And they always know. And and I ask them how they got through it. And the same fundamentals apply in this new, more difficult situation. So the the good news is, despite how unprecedented this is in your life, it's not the first difficult thing you've ever done or gotten through far from it. And it's a, it's a, it's, it's a more extreme and frightening, difficult thing, but you're going to face it the way you faced every difficult challenge in your life. You, you do know how to do this.
1: Yeah. Do you find that that kind of ignites or, or sparks the resiliency within people when they are,
2: I think it's more than resilient or it's different than resilience. I think it's deeper than that. I think it's about having faith in oneself because if you have faith in yourself, the, the rest will unfold.
1: I'm finding myself able to talk about death and die, my, my death and dying with a bit more ease. Yes. Um, but I recognize yes. that the people that I love around me, That it is so shrouded in darkness and sadness and fear and anxiety that speaking freely um, or talking about death in a way that I would talk about anything, which is with sarcasm and some wit and some dry humor, um, that that's triggering for them because they're not at that that the, we're not on the same timeline, how do you recommend, how do you broach the topic, right, of death with, with your loved ones who are unable to talk about it because of the association with that, that darkness and the morbidity and the sadness that so many people associate with, with death?
2: First of all, it's possible that they're reticent because they think it's, despite the good example you're setting, and you are, They still may believe that talking about it is something you with them is not something you want or something that will make you, I'm making up this word. This is their mind, not yours, make you feel worse. Uh, And so the first thing I would do is, is let them know, look, it helps me to talk about this. And, and, and you're not making it worse by going there with me. It makes it better. So if you can, if you can, Let's, let's go there together. If you can't, I understand. Now, that's the first thing. So I think there has to be some permission granted and for them to know that it's helpful to you, not hurt. The second thing I would say is that the disease is in charge. The disease has its own power and its own rhythm, and it is going to carry everyone along You're ahead of them, of course, because it's your disease. But when one has metastatic cancer, it metastasizes to the entire family. It metastasizes to all the people you love, not as quickly or directly, but they are going to be carried along this process by the disease. The disease will prepare them To go there with you, the disease will prepare them to be open and accepting and candid and loving with you. Um, So I think it's a combination of permission granted and whether they're able or not to accept the invitation today, realizing that the day will come when the disease will open them in a way that really puts them by your side during this journey verbally too not just physically or emotionally
1: yeah because it is it is helpful at least where I am right now to talk about it what do I do when I and when I do preface it with that and it's someone you know it's it's part of my inner circle and they they just get welled up with tears and just go, like, do we have to, like, uh, you know, do we have to talk about that today? Like, why does today have to be a sad day?
2: Yeah, under under our previous idea that death doesn't give anyone a new personality. It just intensifies right. the personality we have. My guess is that that's a person who, you know, was was generally uncomfortable having those kinds of candid conversations about anything. Yeah, And so why, yeah. why would you expect that person to be any different now? Right. It's true. So, mm-hmm. you know, you might be pushing on a locked door, but it has nothing to do with the fact that now you have terminal cancer, because if it had been about, I don't know sex or money 10 years ago they would have been just as closed off to the conversation. So That's I, a good point. You know, I think that's worth remembering is who who's your audience here and what are you expecting of your audience.
1: Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. And you know, as I said it it does help me but I still have my own existential anxiety and fears about I fear less. I fear less death because maybe this is just one part of the adventure. Maybe this is just one chapter. We would look back and go, "Oh, that was just one," you know. So I, I'm coming to peace with that. Um, what I'm more fearful of is the physical, and more so now, the mental deterioration that is unknown but the more i learn of stories of people who are in my situation and have brain tumors that continue to pop up like that scares the hell out of me
2: well let's let's talk about that let's talk about yeah. that okay um and alzheimers is a different kind of brain disease and mm-hmm it involves the death of, of parts of the brain. And I lived with my that with my father for 10 years. And what I can tell you, at least in that case, and in the cases of others that I have shepherded through brain cancer, it tends to come with its own anesthesia. The disease tends to come with its own anesthesia and while imagining yourself today, because you're, you have your full mental faculties in that position two years from now seems so painful, and it is, but when you're actually in it, you'll be at peace because you, you will. Um, the disease kind of carries you. I mean, it, let me just say you have some experience with this at this point where, are you not amazed at what you've gotten used to in this journey? So far, yeah, is, yes. isn't it
1: adaptability? Isn't it yeah, it is amazing
2: what you can get used to. Yeah, yeah, but that doesn't stop. You know, my father didn't know what he didn't know. What he did know was that he was surrounded by familiar people who loved him and he was content. I think that's where you will be at some point. And, and but from your perspective today, looking forward, it you you have the feelings of a person with your current level of cognition looking at a person who will not have those feelings with a different level of cognition. You won't. You won't. Any more than you know you're sleeping when you're sleeping.
1: Yeah. That makes me feel better.
2: It's I guess. it's the truth.
1: Well, I instantly go to the and I know you talk about this in the book, but yeah, just, just so much so much guilt and the weight of the impact of this on those I love.
2: Yes, it's amazing what they're going to be able to get used to also. As I told you, yeah. the disease is also going to prepare them for this reality. It is. It is.
1: You know, you talk about, you said in the book, you know, certain things can only be learned when we let them, right? Do you think the appreciation for life, and just the good, and and uh, cherishing the relationships and the moments, and uh, focusing on the things that matter—that that insight that you glean after experiencing your own trauma and and loss. Do you feel like it's possible for people to really internalize and grasp that 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 truth without having to go through what people like you and I have gone through?
2: No, I don't. You know, Marshall McLuhan, the Canadian philosopher, Marshall McLuhan said, I don't know who discovered water, but it wasn't the fish. And what he meant was, we're all so immersed in our own reality that we really have no perspective on it. Just like a fish, a fish is born in water, lives in water, dies in water, and therefore doesn't even know it's in water. When does a fish discover water, right? A fish discovers water when it's pulled out of the water and it's gasping and flailing on the banks For air. And that's when a fish wakes up and says, Wow, water is a miracle. Water is a blessing. I think that we, I think that disruption is required for gratitude. Now, this disruption doesn't always have to be felt so personally. I'll give you an example from my own life. When I went to uh, India and volunteered in the slums in Mumbai, That jerked me out of the water pretty aggressively. I don't care where you go in this country, you will not see poverty like that. It is is unimaginable until you're in it. And that definitely changed me. I was not the same person when I came home. I was deeply affected by it. So, yes, it can be vicarious. But I don't think there's real growth without real disruption. You know, this is even a theory in evolution that biologists have. Most people, when you talk about evolution, they think about it as a, as a constantly, steadily ascending line, like we're always evolving upward. But, but there's a theory in biology called punctuated equilibrium, which is, no, 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 that's not how evolution works. Species plateau, and it's a, it's a horizontal line, and then something happens to punctuate that equilibrium. An asteroid hitting the earth and causing climate change, for example. And then some species disappear and some, some evolve very quickly to a new level. I think human beings require punctuated, require our equilibrium to be punctuated in order for us to grow. And again, that that punctuation can come internally or externally, but I think it's a necessary necessary component i mean what does success really teach you not very much (laughs) right it's only Mm -hmm. failure that really teaches you something
1: that's true that's true what is the give me give me the jewish POV on what happens after we die
2: Well, like most Jewish questions, there's more than one answer.
1: It depends. Um,
2: yeah. You want to hear a joke about that? Yeah. Okay. So there are these two business partners that are having a dispute. They decide they're going to go ask the rabbi for his opinion. So the first partner walks in, tells the rabbi his story, and the rabbi says, You know something? You're right. He leaves. The second partner comes in, tells the rabbi his story, complete opposite story, and the rabbi looks at him and says, You know something? You're right. And he leaves. And then the rabbi's assistant who heard the whole thing comes in and says, Rabbi, you told the first guy he was right. You told the second guy he was right. They can't both be right. The rabbi looks at his assistant and says, You know something? You're right.
1: <laughs> do you have like a million
2: yeah. of those like parables? Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I do. So The short answer is there are many different Jewish beliefs about the afterlife because Judaism is a 3,000-year-old tradition and beliefs evolve. But basically, I can give you the spectrum. It's everything from actual resurrection. Like, for example, in the Bible, Ezekiel's vision in the Valley of Dry Bones where these dry bones come up out of the valley and take on flesh. That's resurrection. I'll tell you what I believe after seeing and this is also deeply jewish it's it's deeply jewish because it's it's about the transmigration of the soul what i believe after seeing a thousand dead bodies anyone who's seen a dead body knows there is so that is so not the person there is so much more to us than our corporeal being there is so much more to us than our physicality in fact i think it's a very small part of who we really are And so what I believe is that we really are made of two components, the body and the soul. And if you don't like the word soul, use some other words, spirit, energy, essence, presence. I I don't Mm. care what you call it. It doesn't matter. Mm. But there's so much more to us than our bodies. And I believe when our, our bodies die and return to the earth, from which all things come, but our souls remain. Where I can't tell you, how I can't tell you. I can only tell you that I feel my father's soul is with me. Mm. In so many beautiful ways. Mm. And, and the souls of other people I've known and loved. Uh, and I have heard too many stories about people feeling the presence of their loved one who has died. I've just heard, heard too many to dismiss them as mere projections. And by the way, even if it is just a projection, just, I shouldn't say that. Even if it is a projection, that too is real. My projections are real to me, right? The the Talmud says we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. I'm okay with that. That's real. So, you know, that's my view. I I often explain it to children like a, a cocoon and a butterfly. Mm -hmm. that the body's the cocoon and when it dies something beautiful is released and remains that's why I called the book The Beauty of What Remains because I really believe much remains and it's beautiful
1: and my belief system is a right now kind of a hodgepodge I'm kind of taking what I want and like from things and and leaving the rest Um, but I do believe that the easiest way for me to, to wrap my head around it is, you know, whatever's, whatever's powering nature and the earth, I'm a big outdoors person and um, whatever runs the moon and the, the sun and the stars. And, you know, thinking about how small we are as humans in this freaking spinning globe that's in a galaxy that's made up of many galaxies. I mean, like when I start to get like that, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm so small you know, I'm so small, there is something bigger out there. And when I get quiet, I feel connected to that, you know, and I can be moving outside in nature, or I can be sitting in my office listening to headspace, but I, I feel, I feel that, um, what do you say to someone who says, I just, I'm so pragmatic, I'm so logical. I'm so based in science. I, I don't, I have a very tough time. This is not me, but I have a very tough time. I, I haven't found faith yet. I haven't found faith yeah. or, or belief in something because it just doesn't make sense to me, especially with all of the awful things that can happen in life and do. Yeah.
2: Well, they actually have found faith in something that person because they said i'm so pragmatic and scientific Mm -hmm. so what i think is that everyone is a person of faith there is not a single person on this planet who thinks he or she or any human being is responsible for the rising and setting of the sun or the moon and the stars or or the tides right Mm -hmm. any any human being who opens his or her eyes for 30 seconds realizes there is much more to existence Mm
1: -hmm.
2: than humanity, individually or collectively. Now, what they really have is a psycholinguistic objection to the word God. And I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, By the way, this is very difficult for a lot of Jews to talk about God in English because Jews feel like they sound like evangelical Christians when they talk about God in English. Because evangelical Christians have monopolized God talk in America. If I, if I got up in front of my congregation and said, God is love, they would think I had lost my mind. What I think we have when people say, I don't believe in God, is they don't believe, they don't like that word because it includes concepts that they reject. So what I say to people is, that's okay, I don't, I'm fine if you don't believe in God. What do you believe in? And they always go on to lay out a very deeply held spiritual concept. They just don't like the word. So I don't care if you call this, you know, a watch or a timepiece or, or an eye watch or, I don't care what you call it. We're all talking about the same thing. We're all talking about the fact that there is a single unifying principle to all of existence that is beyond our ability to fully grasp and yet we can feel. We all have that. I don't care what you call it, right? So there is no such person. Now, the person who says, well, there's, there's so much evil in the world, so I don't believe in God. Well, forgive me, but the God you're saying you don't believe in is the God that five-year-olds believe in. And you should, get a, you should educate yourself and stop trying to operate in the adult world with the theology of a five-year-old. A five-year-old's brain is only capable of conceiving of an omnipotent, omniscient God. You know, a God that runs the world. That's the best a five-year-old brain can do. And what happens is adults never give a second thought to these things, and they walk out into the grown-up world with the theology of a five-year-old, and of course that's going to fail them when the first terrible thing happens. Of course it is. Right. Because if you believe in an omnipotent God, then every bad thing that happens is God's will. Right. And and that's how five year olds think. So I spend a lot of time with people saying we can go further. You can do better than kindergarten math. Right. Right. So, yeah, let's start reading and thinking and talking because, you know, from the book of Job in the Bible to the present, people have been wrestling with what you've raised, we call theodicy, God and the problem of evil, right? Mm. And there are lots of answers, not the least of which is that God is, God doesn't pick and choose who suffers and who gets rewarded. That's Santa Claus. That's not God. Yeah. That, that God is much more a part of the natural world and not the supernatural world. I mean, I could go on, we could spend days on this, but I'm just telling you that people's objections are because they haven't been exposed to anything since they were five years old. Um, and, And then there are people who say, well, religion causes wars and fractious issues and it divides people. To which I say, no, extremism does that of all forms. Right? Jewish extremists, Muslim extremists, Christian extremists are the problem, not the religion. And by the way, extreme secularism is a bigger problem. If you think about the three most murderous regimes in the 20th century, it was Mao, Stalin, and Hitler, and all three were anti religious. So religion has nothing to do with. With the decency of a society or not, it's extremism that has everything to do with the decency of a society or not. Religious or otherwise, all extremism is bad.
1: I would love to read one passage from your book um, because it literally embodies everything that No Time to Waste is, is all about. Um, you say, Death is a wake up call to find an antidote to the inevitable indignities, cravings, and predations of our frenetic lives during which we are so terribly busy yet feel so terribly empty sometimes. Death is a powerful reminder to buy less and do more, live more, travel more, and give more instead. Create your own kind of Sabbath in your heart and your life. Spend a seventh of your life gathered around the candlelit table and snuggle beneath the covers. Stroll, listen, think, breathe, and relish your most sacred, finite, and beautiful blessing, Time. Don't wait until your whole house, whole damn house, is on fire to wake up panicked one day and realize that you've squandered your time because no one, not even you, wants your crap. But I am trying to spread the message of, right, which is live and love like there's no time to waste because there isn't. This is all we've got. Today is all we have. Um, your book, The Beauty of What Remains, is, uh, I think, an incredible journey, and I can't wait to read the previous book because it sounds like it would be really relatable to my experience right now. Um, but thank you. You are everything, everything that no time to waste is about.
2: Uh, I, uh, I deeply moved by you and by our conversation and I'm here for you. I hope you know that.
0: Okay. So if you really want to maximize your moments, you could pitch in and help us get the word out. Just rate and review the podcast on iTunes. That's it. Oh, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss future episodes and bonus content. For more motivation, head to notimetowasteproject.com or join the squad on Instagram at notimetowasteproject. Grazie mille.